Hi there, it's Mark from Third Shot Sports. You're listening to Pickleball Problems. Pickleball Problems is a show where we take your questions about pickleball and turn it into a podcast. So whether you want to talk technique or tactics, equipment or etiquette, Give us a call at 1-833-PICKLE-B, that's 1-833-742-5532, and leave your message. All right, well, let's get to the calls. Hi, Mark. Uh, enjoying your podcast. Uh, my name is Bill Winkworth. I'm from Tilbury, Ontario. I've just started playing pickleball in the last four months, and one of the things that I notice is, is that when many people get to the kitchen line and the ball is high, you're trying to spike it, and you end up spiking it right into the net. I know I do it several times uh, over a course of a couple of hours, and I see many other people doing it. Uh, it's got to have something to probably do with how you're falling through or the angle maybe of the paddle, but you, many, many people drive it right down into the net. So just wondering if you had any tips on how to uh, avoid doing it. Ah, uh, yes, we've all been there, haven't we? You get up to the line, you get that high, juicy ball. You can't wait to put it away. It's going to be your highlight reel shot. It's really going to make an impression on your opponents. And what do you do? you slam it into the bottom of the net. Very demoralizing indeed. Okay, so what is it that's going on here? Well, we've got to ask the question, what is it that makes the ball go too low? Because when you hit in the net, you're hitting too low. Whether that happens from the baseline, whether it happens from midcourt, whether it happens from right up at the kitchen line, you're hitting the ball too low. So there are two things primarily that control the height that a ball travels. One, as you mentioned, is the angle of the paddle. So one problem could be that your paddle angle is tilted too much downwards. You're hitting too much on the top part of the ball. And you're hitting too much on the top of the ball, you're hitting too much downwards, and then boom, bottom of the net. The second thing that uh, affects how high a ball travels is what we call the path of the swing. So imagine I had a perfectly perpendicular straight up and down paddle face. Let's imagine I'm hitting a forehand. Now if I have a level swing going straight back to front, that ball will go straight. If I have that exact same paddle angle but I swing from low to high as I hit, that ball will go upwards. And if I have that exact same straight up and down paddle face when I hit a forehand and I swing from high to low, that ball will go downwards. So it's the angle of the paddle and the path of the swing that affect how high or low a ball travels. So one thing that could be happening is even if you have an okay paddle angle, if you're really swinging downwards on the ball, then that ball is going to go down. And if you're swinging too much downwards, that's when you get hit the net. So it's those two things, either independently or in combination, um, that are uh, that are going on here that are causing the problem, causing the ball to go into the net. But an important question is also, what might make you have the wrong paddle angle? Or what might make you have a swing path that is too much downwards? And very often, um, it's that people get overexcited. They get that ball, that high juicy sitter that they can't wait to put away. They get overexcited and rather than calmly playing a shot that they should be able to make easily, they get too excited, they try to hit it too hard, they try to put it away and look like a hero. And consequently, they don't control the angle of the paddle well enough or the swing path. So, step one, if you want to stop putting these balls on the bottom of the net, stay calm even though you see this golden opportunity in front of you. And step two is pay attention to the angle of the paddle and the swing path. Hey Mark, this is uh, Jim from St. Louis, Missouri calling. Um, our uh, rec center has a weekly round robin, and um, one of our players suggested we use rally uh, serving or scoring to speed up our play. Uh, we've not come to a consensus yet, 
And I was wondering uh, what your thoughts are regarding the pros and cons of uh, going to that type of scoring system. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all lived in a place where there were more pickleball courts than there were people? As far as the eye could see, there's open pickleball courts. So you can find your friends, you can go out and play with them, you can even rotate with other people, but you get to play the whole time. Unfortunately for many of us, including yours truly, that is not the case. Many of us are in situations where you have to wait your turn to play until a court opens up, and you need some sort of way to organize that. Now what you could do is you could say, hey, as soon as a game is over, then that group comes off, another group goes on. But the trouble is, when you use standard scoring, and for those who are maybe new to pickleball listening, standard scoring means that only the serving team can actually earn a point. When you use standard scoring, a game theoretically could go on forever. As long as the returning team keeps winning the rallies and getting side outs, the score could still be 0-0 after 1, 2, 3, 5 hours of play, in theory. So one of the beauties of rally scoring is that you know a game is going to end. Typically when players uh, use rally scoring, because the games will be a little bit shorter, they typically extend what you play to. So instead of the traditional 11 points, you often will see rally scoring situations where they play first to 15. And that way, let's say you're playing first to 15 rally scoring, you know that at the most, you're going to have to wait 29 points before you get to go play, because then the score would be 15-14 at the most. Uh, at a minimum, it would be 15 points, right? Someone goes out and they they have a walkover and it's 15-0. But either way, you are guaranteed that the game will come to an end at some point and then you get to keep playing. I think that makes a lot of sense when you're in situations where the idea is, hey, we want to get as many games as possible in a given period of time. Alternatively, what you could do is you could set a timer and have people play regular scoring and say, okay, you're allocated five minutes or seven minutes or 12 minutes or whatever you want. And regardless of what the score is, when that timer goes off, that game is done and the next team comes on. That would be a much more uh, equitable way of um, allocating court time. But, um, but yeah, I think rally scoring makes sense when you're waiting and you're trying to get the most people playing as possible. Uh, to me, I think that's a good idea. Now, what are the drawbacks? Well, the, one of the drawbacks is that uh, it may change the strategy a little bit. When you're serving uh, traditional scoring and you know that even if you miss your serve, you go for a really aggressive serve to the backhand or a nice you know, ace out wide, if you miss, if you blow it, uh, your opponents don't get a point. Whereas in rally scoring, they would, so it may cause you to be a little more careful when you're hitting your serves. But you mentioned that you're in a community center setting where I'm guessing if you're like the ones that I visit, then you're trying to play recreational pickleball where people get sort of a fair shake, where they all get to play and they're not spending their whole afternoon sitting around hoping that a game comes to an end. So in that case, I give my blessing to your group playing rally scoring. This episode is supported by 20 drills and 10 games to play better pickleball. If you're tired of playing at the same level and are serious about improving your skills, this ebook is right up your alley. Full of fun and focused activities you can do with a partner or ball machine, 20 drills and 10 games to play better pickleball is easy to use and best of all, fun to use. Get it today at thirdshotsports.com and use the promo code PROBLEMS to save 33%. Hi, Mark. This is Kat Smalley from Decatur, Illinois. I have a question that's mostly etiquette, but also a little bit rules. Here's the scenario. Your uh, opponents are serving to you, so you're receiving, and they call a score. Let's say it's 3-0-1. You realize that uh, it's the starting server, 
and they are on the right-hand side, so they're back in their neutral position. And you know this is not correct. Um, so in rec play, I'm totally comfortable with what to do. Um, I would stop the play, have a conversation, and say, hey, if you guys are sure that you're in the right position, you probably missed counting a point. Let's say you guys have four, and we all go on with our life, and that's cool. But I'm wondering what the best way to handle that is when you're in a competitive situation in a tournament. I think there's probably a difference from when you don't have a referee and when you do. So when do you call it, how do you call it, and what should you expect um, a referee to do? Let's deal with the easy situations first. You are playing in a recreational game and uh, they call the wrong score or you think it's the wrong server or something. Yeah, you're right. Just stop saying, no, think you got it wrong, think you're on the wrong side. I think it's her serve, not his serve, whatever. That makes common sense to me and it sounds like you've got that one under control. The other relatively easy situation is when you have a referee, because now the onus is on them, not on you. It's the ref's job to keep track of the score and call the score. It's the ref's job to call any sort of infraction, whether it's the wrong server or the wrong side. Um, you might alert the ref to the fact that it was the wrong server or the wrong side uh, in case they miss it, but the onus is on them. So you're sort of off the hook there. The more interesting situation is the one that you're talking about where it's sort of... It's still a competitive situation, but there is no ref. Here's what I think. When your opponents say the score at the beginning of a point before they start to serve, in part what they're doing is they're trying to make sure everyone's on the same page. Is it in fact seven serving two or not? So if they call it the score and they call out the wrong score, I think that you have an obligation to stop and say, oh, no, I think you're wrong. I think it's it's six two, not seven two or whatever. So if they make an error in that case, um, stop them before they serve, or if they serve anyway, catch the ball and say, no, sorry, you got the score wrong. Here's what it really is. However, I don't think that you're under any obligation to tell them that they're the wrong server or on the wrong side. That's something that they need to keep track of. So when they call out the score, my advice would be, if the score they're calling is correct, but they just happen to be standing on the wrong side or they've got the wrong person serving, if it's a competitive match, I wouldn't say anything. This is part of the game, is keeping track of who's the server and what side you're on. So as long as they call the score properly, let them play on. When they hit that wrong server or the wrong side, then stop the play immediately, say, sorry, I think that was the wrong server, wrong side, side out, or whatever it's going to be. But if they do call the score wrong, um, then I think you have an obligation to tell them because them calling the score is sort of... There's a bit of a contract there, right? They're saying, hey, it's 7-2, right? And um, if you don't correct them, then I think you're sort of, it's not very great sportsmanship. But it's their job to know who's the server and what side it's coming from. So in a competitive situation, don't feel any obligation to correct them on that. Let them make their mistake. Let them learn from their mistake. And meanwhile, you get the side out. Hey, Mark. It's uh, Rich Meyer, and I'm calling from Venice, Florida. Um, I'm really curious about how the top pros and the top five O's select their partners for a tournament. Um, specifically, I see that Kyle Yates is playing with a lot of different partners right now uh, leading up to the, the uh, Open in, in uh, Naples. So I was just wondering if he's uh, changed partners for that course or if he's going to try to get back together with Dave Weinbach for a three-peat or what. I'm just curious how, how you guys uh, team up to better understand how Kyle Yates chooses his doubles partners, let's welcome Kyle Yates. Hey, Mark. Hey, so um, Rich wants to know, how do you decide who you're going to play doubles with in the tournaments? And uh, he also wants to know who you're playing with at the U.S. Open. Well, there's a 
ton of guys I actually want to play with. And so, you know, he can only play so many tournaments a year. And I know there's some guys that were last year that I had a lot of fun with that I can't make time for him this year. Um, like Curtis Campbell being one of them. Uh, Wesley Gabrielson, I think I've only got one tournament with him this year. Um, I'm trying to be a little more deliberate with what tournaments I do play. Uh, my schedule is a little crazy as it is with travel. Um, but, yeah, right now there's there's a few guys I've got tournaments signed up with. Um, Aspen Curran I've got a couple with. We won a, a couple last year. We're going to try to play again. Um, ben Johns, my buddy from back home. Um, definitely going to get a few tournaments with him this summer. But uh, U.S. Open, I'll be playing with Matt Wright um, this year and also probably COC. Uh, we'll play together. So, Wow. So, yeah, I, I bet. Yeah. So, you know, a player of your stature, you must have a lot of people who are looking forward to playing with you. And because you know these top guys like Matt Wright, like Aspen, like Ben, like Curtis, right? The list goes on and on and on. So how does, like, what's the final process? Is it that you're, you know, is it is it just a matter of like your schedules matching up? Is it a matter of geography? You know, you're playing a tournament. We know Aspen's now on the East Coast, so you're playing a tournament on the East Coast, and he's there. Is it about schedules? Because some guys, you know, like Wes is a school teacher, and sometimes the tournaments don't match the school schedule. Like, like what are the different factors that go into figuring out um, who you're going to play with and when? You know, yeah, a lot of it's just who who can make it. So. You know, I, I always ask, you know, the first couple guys, and, you know, if they, if they can't make it, then you kind of move on and ask another guy. And, uh, yeah, it just kind of goes like that. So I know Ben is in school. He can't make every tournament. Matt Wright, you know, he's busy working, too. He can't make every tournament. Um, so, you know, you just kind of go down the list. And, and like I said, there's so many guys I want to play with. You know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's who asks me first. Um, otherwise, otherwise, I go out looking, looking for guys if I need someone. I mean, I think a lot of the listeners will appreciate that sometimes life gets in the way of pickleball, right? And there's there's logistical challenges that means that certain guys you'd love to play with can't make a tournament, or you're already committed to something else. Um, tell us about Matt Wright. Uh, for you know our listeners who might not know, he's an awesome player. He's a he's a big guy. He's got a power game. Um, why do the two of you match up well for U.S. Open? Uh, well, I've never played a tournament with him, but I played against him a few times, and it's not fun. So I figured I might as well play with him, so I don't have to play against him again. Keep your friend, your, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Exactly. Well, I played I played against him in the finals of the U.S. Open, and and we we got the edge on him that time. But I played against him in the bronze medal match at TOC, and we we beat him there. But he took me down in the national finals last year, and uh, I just remember every every time you play against him, it's work. So I I figured I might as well have him on my side of the net. It might <laughs> might go a little better for me. Uh, you know what? I th- I think that's good advice for most listeners is like, just find the person that you hate playing against the most and ask them if they want to team up. Exactly. Uh, that sounds great. Well, I hope, uh, Rich, I hope this satisfies your answer, uh, or your question. Um, Kyle, what else, what have you got going on? What do you want to tell, uh, our listeners about what, what kind of uh, cool events do you have coming up soon? I'm down Florida, uh, Fort Myers, not too far from Naples. And so I, we've got, um, one of our destination camps, U.S. Open Pickleball Academy, this weekend. Uh, we've got another one, uh, I think, coming up in March. So if you guys, if you guys are looking for a nice little vacay down in Naples um, in the winter, uh, we we do run, we do run camps. Um, you know, Simone and I down here, and some other top pros. I think Morgan Evans is actually coming for this one this week. So excited to have him. And how do people? And uh, also, so so I'm I can see yeah. people right now like 
jumping on their computers. How do they find out if they want to join you and Simone and some of the other top pros that come? How do they how do they get involved in these ones at US Open Pickleball Academy? Go check out USOpenPickleballAcademy.com. Sweet. Okay, so you got that. And what else coming up? And then um, fun fun little trip for me. I'm going to Costa Rica Sunday for a week. We got a, a teaching teaching down there. They got a nice little resort with some courts. So I'm excited about that. That one is closed, but it's a good sign that there are trips like this. So for, for those of you who like to go vacation and you can't go a week without playing pickleball, there, there are trips to look into. So tons coming up. That's awesome. I'm sure people will be uh, emailing me and probably I'll just forward all those emails to you, Kyle. Oh, beautiful. All right, sweet. Uh, thanks for the chat. Thanks for answering Rich's question. You got it. There you go, Rich. Just find a big, strong partner that will put the ball away for you. Didn't... Uh... Didn't Matt Wright beat uh, Andy Roddick in tennis one time? That's that's how the the story goes. That's what I hear. That's what I, maybe we'll have to call Matt and find out. Yeah, yeah, I'll call Andy and find out. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Kyle. You got it, Mark. Okay, bye. Hi, Mark. This is Chuck Mitchell from Markham. Uh, my question for you today is: I've been playing for about a year now, and. Uh, Graduated from a beginner to 3.0 to probably now playing at a good 3.5 level. Um, find the self-evaluation a little confusing, to be honest. Uh, um, but regardless of that, what I'm curious about is what to do from a standpoint of drills, practice, clinics, uh, to move to a 4.0 and hopefully eventually 4.5. Um, and how do you know when you're there? Um, uh, obviously, playing in tournaments is one of them, but uh, in the absence of that, uh, what other ways can you sort of confidently feel that you're improving to those levels? Ratings, ratings, ratings. This is the kind of question that I get from many different people. What's my rating? How do I improve my rating? How do I go up? And I understand it. Everyone wants to improve their rating. They want to be able to go forward. So, where should I start? I appreciate your desire to have a clear idea about exactly what you need to do to advance your rating, to improve. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's reasonable to expect that when you're talking about ratings, that certain benchmarks are clearly laid out, so you know exactly what you need to do to meet those benchmarks. Now, why don't we take a look at the official ratings outline that describes the different levels. Let me pull it up here. Okay, so I'm looking at this, and let's see, for the 3.5 level player, it says, demonstrates improved stroke dependability with directional control on most medium pace balls and some faster balls. Hmm, demonstrates improved stroke dependability. Demonstrates improved stroke dependability compared to what? And I've got directional control on most medium pace balls. Well, how fast is a medium paced ball? and most. Does that mean 50% plus one? And some faster paced balls. Well, how many faster paced balls do I have to have demonstrable stroke dependability with directional control? Okay, let's skip that one. Um, okay, oh, 3.5, here we go. Uh, exhibit some aggressive net play. Exhibit some aggressive net play. Hmm. So when there's a high ball and you go and you hammer it and you yell out loud, this is for my mother, and smash it in the bottom of the net. I guess that is exhibiting some aggressive net play. 
Beginning to anticipate opponent's shots. Okay, so let's see. Um, when your opponent is getting ready to serve, I, I guess if you know that they're about to serve, that I think I'm going to stop here. As you can see, we've got a real problem. With the way that the rating system is outlined right now, it is incredibly vague. Words like some and often and is beginning to or consistent or dependable, um, beginning to master the use of power and spin. By the way, apparently that's a 4.5 skill. These are incredibly vague and it's unfair to players to ask them to give themselves adequate ratings when you have such vague guidelines. To answer your question, I don't know. I guess what you should do is you should go on and you should look at these guidelines. You can find them all over the internet. Um, look at these guidelines and take your best guess. That's, I think, what a lot of people would suggest. I think a couple other things. One, when I do ratings with people, I have devised a system that is actually um, objective and quantifiable. And what I do is I take a couple, a couple, I take four key areas that are important for players to develop. Uh, serving with control and consistency, returning where you can control the depth of the return, volleying with consistency, and playing third shot drops. And what we do is um, I actually run them through this test and, uh, and actually keep score, keep numbers, track how they're doing, track their performance. So when we ask, for example, I'm going to hit 10 serves to you and you, your job is to return it deep in the court past three-quarter court. And I put out some pylons so we have really clear markers and you get to hit those 10 returns a serve and guess what? After you hit your 10, we now have a score, something out of 10. And so um, for me, uh, what, I think you said you were a 4.0 player or hoping to become a 4.0 player. For us, a 4.0 player can uh, land that ball past this cone at three-quarter court eight out of ten times, right? And we do that, we use that same sort of rubric um, that we've developed by watching players at different levels and, and running them through these tests so that you actually have quantifiable ways to measure where you are now and what you need to be able to do down the road. Now, is this system perfect? No, of course not, because there are other variables in play. But I do think that um, we do a disservice to players when we ask them to uh, rate themselves with really vague uh, subjective guidelines to do this. Tournaments actually aren't that great a way of doing it. Take this as an example. I had a student recently who said, you know what, I think I'm ready to play 4.0. I'm going to sign up for a 4.0 tournament. Let's imagine that person goes to a 4.0 tournament and you happen to play them in the first round of the tournament. You don't know them, they're strangers to you, you play them. And you crush them. And let's say it's 11-2, 11-2. And you leave that day and you say, wow, I'm playing in a 4.0 tournament and I just like want to match super easily against 4.0 level players, which they weren't really 4.0 players, but they thought that. Now, what does that tell you? That either that you're, well, definitely a 4.0 player, maybe since you won so easily against this supposed 4.0, maybe you're higher than that. Using tournaments um, solely to, not even tournaments, but like victories to determine a player's rating is actually problematic because you don't necessarily know who you're playing against. In practical terms, if you go out with and play amongst a group that kind of everyone sort of thinks of as typically a 3.5 player, right? There seems to be consensus most of these players. What should happen, you know that you're ready to play at the 4.0 level. Um, if amongst that group of 3.5s, you stand out as clearly the best. You should look like you don't belong there. Now don't act like you don't belong there, don't be a jerk. But it should be clear to sort of some observer, even a non-pickleball player, wow, this guy is way better than those guys. That's kind of how you know. Um, and so it does maybe mean going outside your usual playing group 
um, you know, maybe it's playing a tournament, maybe it's just driving somewhere else to play with a different group, you know, to try to sort of uh, widen the pool a little bit. But um, you know you're ready to leave your peer group when you're the best one there. And we'll leave it there. If you've got a question for me, give us a call at 1-833-PICKLEB. That's 1-833-742-5532. See you next time.